All right, so um, we're going to look at another person today, Micah, and um, hear what God will teach us through this prophet. We've been going through, there's a series of 12 small books, but written by prophets of Israel. And um, last week we looked at Jonah, and this week we're going to look at Micah. We're going to read several uh, passages from Micah um, before we we look at it, and before I kind of try to summarize what this book is all about. So um, let's listen, and I'm just going to start with Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll be, we'll be going through the book. The word of the Lord came to Micah Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may, may bear witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Look. The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt before him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards, I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered gifts from the wages of prostitutes, and the wages, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. And then chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And so this is again a case. We've been declaring the Lord's going to testify against Israel. This is part of his case against Israel. He says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then chapter 7 and verse 18. So this is how it can. Micah concludes, and we're actually going to go back to chapter 4. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham, as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. And then Micah chapter 4, 1 through 5. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. 
Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pray. O Lord our God, even as you have spoken long ago through your prophet, we pray that you would speak through him today, that we might hear your words and see that there is no other God like our God, and that we might stand in wonder of you, even as Micah did. O Lord, so reveal yourself, show yourself in all your glory. We pray today in Jesus' name, amen. You don't have to talk to people very long to find out that people are distressed about the nations, about the state of the world. And oftentimes those who are, who are Christians wonder, why doesn't God do something about the nations? Why doesn't he take all these just, unjust situations and do something about it? And you can see that that's the sort of question that the people of Israel would often ask. They were often oppressed. They were often hurt by other nations. And they, might, and they might say, why is all this going on? Why doesn't God do something about it? Well, into that situation steps the prophet Micah. And by the way, in your bulletin, I do have an outline of this message. So if you want to follow along, I have some, uh, some blanks there that you can fill in and stuff like that. So that should be in there. It is in there, right? Okay. <laughs> So um, this is my second week of doing it, so I just want to make sure we got that. Um, so into this steps the prophet Micah. I like the prophet Micah a lot. And um, I often think about his name because his name in the original Hebrew means who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yah, a shortened name of Yahweh? Who is like God? And I think that... Um, Micah probably often thought about his own name. You know, sometimes we might not hear what our name's meaning is, but uh, speaking in Hebrew, it was much clearer. And so he probably often thought, who is like Yahweh? And you can imagine this was like his meditation all the time. Who is like our God? And as he thought about that, he saw something very different than what we might see or what Israel saw. He didn't see a God who was far off. He didn't see a God who was not doing something. He saw a God who was active in the world, and he saw a God who was ready to judge the world. And so he might have thought, who is like Yahweh in judgment? Who is like Yahweh in judgment? That's the first thing we want us to see here. <clears throat> So Micah says, right at the beginning of his prophets, he wants to tell them what he is seeing about Yahweh. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. He was not silent 
The Lord was speaking. The Lord is judging. The Lord is evaluating the nations. And he's ready to speak from his throne room. The holy temple is like his throne room in heaven. And he's going to act. Look at what it says in verse 3. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. And the valleys split apart like wax before the fire. Like water rushing down the slopes. And so we can see that he saw God as very active in the things of the world. If we think about it, it's actually true. His judgments are in the earth. So as most of you know, I had the great pleasure to visit the nation of Egypt back in May. As I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about this giant, well, everywhere you go in Egypt, you'll see a, a statue and nine times out of ten, you'll ask, who's that statue? And it's Ramses. Ramses. So, and it's like, there's four of them at Abu Simbel. Giant statues seated. It's Ramses, 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 Ramses. So everywhere you go, it's Ramses. So in Memphis, Egypt, not Tennessee. They named that city after the one in Tennessee. Just kidding. The reverse. Um, and there is a giant statue of of Ramses the Great, reigned 70 years, did some amazing things. And at one time, this statue was upright. But there in the museum, the statue, he's lying on his back. And even if they wanted to stand it up, they couldn't because the feet have been broken off. And to me, that was a reminder. It's like, no matter how great he is, the judgments are of the Lord are in the earth. And the mighty fall, they're brought down. A lot of people say that Ramses was the God, or not the God, but he thought he was, um, was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. The Lord's judgments are in the earth. And so as Micah contemplated that, he would have said, who is like Yahweh in judgment? But the problem of God's judgment is this. What if God comes down and stands before us and evaluates us on the basis of what we have done, what we have thought, what we have said, not according to our standards, but according to his holy and righteous and perfect standards, according to his own holiness. Then the problem is going to be not just for the nations. We're going to find that there's a problem for us. Because we like to think we've done all right. We can compare ourselves to someone and find that we've done better in this area or that. But when we compare ourselves to the holy God, we find that we've fallen short in many ways. And that's what Israel was going to find. That's what he tells them in verse 5. He says, all this, this coming down, is not because of the nations, but because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. And then he says, what is Jacob's transgression? Isn't it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Meaning, even the things they relied on as their most important, their religion, the things they brought to sacrifice to the Lord, because they had sinned against the Lord, these things were not going to help them. Even that which they relied on the most was not going to help them. And so the problem of God's judgment is that when we stand before God, we have to give a real account for all the things we've done, for not making ourselves what we should be, for often making ourselves something utterly different than what God would have us to be. And that's what you find in the Bible is that, yes, the Bible will touch at times on the sins of other people, but the Bible confronts the hearers 
And it speaks to their sin. If you look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he doesn't say to the people of Israel, man, these Romans, they're terrible. Look at all the bad things that pagans do. Look at how they are against the family values of Israel. He doesn't go off on the sins of other people. If he had done so, they probably would have been like, yay, Jesus, we like this message. But instead, he spoke about the sins of his hearers, and he challenged what was going on in their hearts, what they had done, the ways they had excused themselves from their wrongdoing. And you can see that this is how it is throughout the Bible. There's a rather famous verse from Micah. There's several, but in Micah 6, verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O mortals, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And people have uh, taken that verse and they often treat it like it's good news. And they sing it. There's actually a kind of haunting worship song like, like uh, he has shown you, O oh man, what is the good and what does the Lord require of you? So you can look it up if you want. And um, it's treated like, you know, oh, this is great. This is all the Lord requires of us, so we're okay. But if you read this verse in context, you'll see that he says this not to encourage them. He says this to condemn them. Because he says, if this is the standard, it's not, in many ways, it's not like God is asking you something crazy. Then we are all in trouble. That's what he's saying. Because, think about it. To, to act justly? Have we shown concern for the people around us? Have we been as concerned for the good of others as we have for ourselves? Have we loved mercy? So often I find myself judging people for the, the slightest things. Like just the, the little differences that are different than mine that I'm ready to judge them for and not give them the benefit of the doubt. Love mercy? Uh, you know, I'm not exactly where I should be. What about walking humbly with our God? More often, we, we walk without any knowledge of God, without even thinking about him. What do we do? Instead, we have pride in ourselves. When we see problems, we don't trust the Lord. We seek to solve them on our own. We seek to put things in the Lord's place. In fact, this standard is not going to lead to our justification, to being declared righteous. Instead, it would lead to our condemnation. And that's what Micah contemplates, because who is a God like God in judgment? God's not a God who's just going to do what we want him to do. He's God. He's his own person. And he is the real God who is above our common standards and who is exalted above all. It's the God of the prophets. So I want to I encourage you a little bit. <laughs> so before I get to the encouragement part, though, don't, don't despair yet. Um, I just want to make three observations about God and judgment. So there are many perspectives on God's judgment. In the prophets, the one we looked at in Obadiah is that God's judgment is good news because God's not going to let all the wrongs of the world just go on and on and on. He's going to do something about it. He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to restore what was lost. But then we saw Jonah. But God also looks at the wrongdoers, not just as those who've done wrong against us, but as his creatures whom he cares about as the ones he created, like Assyria had done lots of wrong to Israel. But Jonah had to see that God also had another purpose in the life of 
of Assyria, he cared about them. They were his creatures. But here's another perspective on God's judgment. When we look at the wrongs of the world, we have to learn to see the wrongs of ourselves. Because if God applies his standard, it's not going to just be against people we don't like. It's going to come against us as well. It's going to evaluate us. And we're going to have to give account to whether we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved our neighbors ourselves. And we're going to find that, no, God's judgment is actually coming against us. And so what I want to encourage you at every time, guard against that which comforts you but doesn't also challenge you. We need comfort indeed, but we also need challenge. We need to have the assurance of God's goodness, but we need to also have the challenge and the call to repentance. One without the other is not the God of the prophets. But then thirdly, one of the major questions of the prophets really is, in light of the fact that there is no one like Yahweh in judgment, the real question of history is this. How can history end in anything other than judgment? How can history end in any other way than God just bringing his wrath down on the nations? That's the God that they see. And that's the question that is deep within their hearts. How can history end up as anything other than judgment? And the answer to that is that this isn't the only side of God, we might say. Because we can also say, who is like Yahweh in judgment? But Micah also saw, who is like Yahweh in mercy? Who is like Yahweh in mercy? As I said, I think Micah thought about his name a lot. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? That's what his name means. And it actually, you find this, not using the word Yahweh, but God, this phrase at the end of the book. In verse 18, there's where Micah, like saying a prayer, says, who is, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? And so we see that God is the God who judges. God is the God who brings, who is not going to just let wrongs go on and on. But he's also the God who forgives. He's also the God of mercy. In fact, no one is like him in mercy. Micah says, you do not stay angry forever, but you delight. You delight to show mercy. And uh, there's a phrase in the prophets where they talk about the wrath of God as his strange work. As if he does do this, but it's not really where he wants to be. What he really, where he really wants to be is showing mercy. He delights in mercy. He doesn't want history to just end in judgment. He wants there to be mercy. He wants there to be forgiveness. Now, in talking like that, I, I recognize that, you know, it's how it is in God himself. It's probably a little bit different than what I've said, but God kind of gives, gives us ways of thinking about that to help us. And so, kind of talking like of God like a human being. But that's how we can kind of think of him and try to get a little bit an understanding of who he is. What this means is that there is hope for history, and there's hope for you and me. And that hope is that God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve, 
but that he is a God who forgives. And it's beautifully stated here in verse 19. He says, you will again have compassion on us and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the seas. And so he describes forgiveness in two different, using two different metaphors. One, it's like it's an enemy. Our, our sins are an enemy. And God comes and he tramples them under his foot and completely smashes them and destroys them. So they're defeated forever. And then the other one is that they are hurled into the depths of the sea. And though we might actually be able to get some things from the depths of the sea today with our technology, in that day it meant there's no way you're going to get it, right? In other words, it's gone. It's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions for us. It's what the Apostle Paul says when he says, Therefore, having been justified, declared righteous, we deserve condemnation. But instead, God declares us righteous so that we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what this prophet points to, and all the prophets we see, there's this tension. Here's the wrath of God coming, but God is also merciful. How do we bring them together? Well, all that lands on the cross where the judgment of God is poured out when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there on the cross, because Jesus was forsaken, we don't ever have to be forsaken. Because he was condemned, we can be justified. Because he experienced the wrath of God, we can be forgiven. All that we need to do is accept that as a gift from God. And then we have the status of Jesus, having, paid, having all our sins paid for, declared righteous in Jesus. That's what Micah is talking about. And so there is hope for history. There is hope for history in God's mercy. There's hope for history in God's forgiveness. But there's also hope for history in God's promises. Notice what he says in verse 20. You'll be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. And so he remembers there that, yes, there's the judgment of God coming. There's the word that if you sin, the wages of sin is death. But alongside of it is the promise that says, in you, Abraham, God speaking to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And so the promise comes alongside the curse, but the promise overcomes, and the blessing is poured out on the nations. And there we see that God is a God of mercy. Who is like God in mercy? No one is like him that would go to the depths that he did to be able to forgive us through the cross. But God is not only a God who just shows mercy. He doesn't just show mercy and leave us there. God is also a God who restores. And so Micah must have thought, who is a God like Yahweh? Who is a God who restores? And that's what we want to see in Micah chapter 4. What Micah saw was that though the world was under God's wrath and judgment, worthy of condemnation, yet the day was going to come when the, when the nations would not only be forgiven, but that they would be brought back to the Lord. And the question is, when does that occur? When are the nations brought back to God? 
Now, we have the answer in the Minor Prophets. The answer is that it is happening now. Because this isn't the only prophecy of the nations being restored. We already saw it in Amos chapter 9. We saw it in Joel chapter 2. And when do the apostles say that that was fulfilled or was beginning to be fulfilled? In their day. It's right now. It's happening. This is the day of the restoration of the kingdom of David. When the nations are brought under his banner and when the nations flow towards the kingdom of God. Now, some people might object, doesn't it say Jerusalem here? Well, you can see that Jerusalem is a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. So if we go to the thing that is not just the picture, but the reality, then we have the substance of the promise. And that's what Hebrews 12 tells us. It says that we are now gathered actually at Mount Zion. Even though we're here in Sevierville, Tennessee, we're actually worshiping before the true Jerusalem before the real temple. And God, as it were, brings us there along with all his people in a way, again, it's difficult to understand, but it is God's throne room before which we worship today. And so, but the heart of this is the encouragement that God restores. And he restores in three ways. We're gonna look at this really quickly and then we're gonna close. God, first of all, God restores worship. People tend to, first of all, not think about God very much, or, and, but it doesn't really work out, so we tend to put things in God's place. So we, we put, whether it's a false, a, a false god like, like Zeus or something like that, or whether it's our, our families, our church, our work, or our kids, or whatever it may be, we tend to load them up with things that only belong to God. But when God does his work, he restores worship. Listen to what it says in verse 2 of chapter 4. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. So they want to go to the mountain of the Lord to worship him, to hear from him, and to learn about him so that they may live in light of who he is. But God does not only restore the relationship with himself, When God restores the relationship with himself, he also restores that relationship with other human beings. Listen to how Micah describes it in verse 3. He says, God will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And then, I'm sure you've heard this before. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. God restores relationships. God brings nations together. He brings families together. He brings people who have been at odds together. I give you many examples of this. I just thought of one friend. I just remember um, he he was totally struggling with his family. And he's just like, I don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. But he was a Christian, and he put his faith in Jesus. And we just talked a little bit, and I said, remember the grace of God. Remember that God, how many chances he's given you. He's like, you're absolutely right. So he says, God has forgiven me. I'm going to forgive my family. I'm going to keep, keep moving towards them, not away from them. And he kept doing it, and he kept doing it. It wasn't always easy, but he brought a lot of restoration to his family. And not only restoration with one another, but then also had its effects in terms of their relationship with God as well. That's what God does. He restores relationship. Then fourthly, or thirdly, God restores productivity. 
Listen to what he says in verse 4. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. What he contemplates is a time when each person has their own place and it's productive and they're, and they're growing things and it's good. And so what I see there is God restores productivity. And what I think that means is when God overcomes our anxiety over all the things of the world because we can trust in him, he restores his worship. And when God enables us to live at peace with others, then we have a lot more margin to do things that serve others, that do things that are more productive. And so that's what the gospel can do. So that's why the Apostle Paul says, for example, the church in Thessalonians. He says that what you should make your ambition to do is to lead a quiet life and to work with your hands. You can let go of all these other things. God has them in control. You don't have to worry so much about the relationships with other people. You can forgive and live at peace, and you can do those things which serve others. God restores productivity. So in conclusion, just let me, I, I, I thought of just the whole bunch of stories about this, but just let me remind you of a couple that I've mentioned already in the past few months. Because when we think about like places where restoration can't occur, we may think restoration can't occur. We might think of drugs, right? It seems like one of the most intractable problems. It seems like one of those things that just, devastates communities and, and leads us so we, we can't do anything and, uh, and we just get totally stuck. But I've been encouraged with a couple stories. Remember uh, Brenda's granddaughter, whom we, uh, who we prayed for for years. And, and we've seen her restoration. And now she's serving. And now she's doing well. And she's found a group that helps her. She's been brought back into community. It's a beautiful thing. Remember the story I told you of the gentleman I met from Naples, Florida. He was involved with a community uh, that was engaged in, in drug rehab. It was a Christian community. He said, I'd see people who came in there totally hating God, having nothing to do with them. And they would begin to hear about what God could do for them and his grace and his mercy, and they would turn. And then they would move out of the, their, their addiction to drugs, you know, bit by bit. And then eventually they'd be helping others. And that way God brings restoration and God brings productivity. And that's what God can do for you and for me. Who is a God like Yahweh? Mighty in power, wondrous in mercy, glorious in restoration. Amen.